Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is Paul Cunningham, Capricorn Control. The time is three minutes after six Eastern Daylight Time. We're at T-minus 30 minutes and counting, and this is Capricorn Control. You will go for inertial guidance and ohms checks. Roger, Houston. You look at what we've meant to this country. Nobody gives a crap about anything anymore. People close their garages and triple lock their doors, hide under the beds. They're even afraid to turn on their television sets for fear of what they might find out in the evening news. There's nothing more to believe in. Now, you want to blow this whole thing wide open? God knows what it might do to everybody. I'm sorry. I'm so goddamn sorry. I just don't know what else to do. I'm hanging on by my fingernails, just like everybody else. Go on. You, you want to be the ones who give everyone another reason to give up? Go on. This is really wonderful. But we go along with you and lie our asses off in the world of truth and ideals is uh, protected. But we don't want to take part in some giant ripoff of yours, and somehow or other we're managing to ruin the country. You're pretty good, Jim. I'll give you that. No, no, no. You're twisting my words. Don't sell yourself short. Don't sell the program short. Don't oversell it. I'm not so sure that canceling a flight or uh, cutting off appropriations means America folds up. It's not as simple as that, and you know it. I don't know it. If the only way to keep something alive is to become everything I hate, I don't know if it's worth keeping it alive. Please, Brew, don't talk like that. What the hell's the matter with you? Please, Brew, don't talk like that. I don't think this is right. All the rest is bullshit. You're out of my hands. You think it's all a couple of loony scientists. It's not. It's bigger. There are people out there, forces out there, who have a lot to lose. Specifically, a conversation between the crew and their wives. This is the first time the crew has been close enough to Earth to make normal conversation feasible. This is Capricorn Control. It's Sharon. I told you never to call me here. Uh, are you feeling well? I'm feeling very well. How's Sandy? She's got the part of Wendy in her school play. They're doing Peter Pan. That's terrific. You sound so close. It's hard to believe you really are that far away in space. It's hard for me to believe it, too. Brew? Hello, King. We're all so proud of you. Can you hear me, Brew? Yes. I'm not sure, Brew Baker. Keep watching. Brew, I have a surprise for you. What? <clears throat> I said I have a surprise for you. What is it? Charles wrote a composition in school. And he won an award. May I read it to you? Brew, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, please read it to me. It doesn't look good. Do you want me to cut the transmission? Not until I tell you. My Father by Charles Brubaker, Jr. My father is far away from me now. He is flying to Mars. One day he told me something. He said that people can't live only for themselves. He said that he was trying to do something that would be good for everybody. I know that is what he is doing now. He is doing something for everybody to give them a better life. That means he is doing something for me too.
So even though he is far away, he is thinking about me and I am with him. That is why I'm not sad. That is why I'm so proud of my dad. And I love him so much. Craft disintegrated within 12 seconds after the loss of the heat shield. Right now, Kellaway is making a speech about what brave, wonderful guys we were. I cannot adequately describe how we feel. These men were an integral part of a family here in the program. Anybody ever sees us again and the whole thing falls apart. I don't think your husband is the kind of man who makes mistakes, no matter how far away he may be. I think he was trying to tell you something. What? What did you do at Flat Rock? We took some home movies. Do you have them? Yes. May I see them? Yes. They were making a movie the day we were there. Brew got a big kick out of it. He never knew it took so much time to just do one simple scene. Rue was fascinated with the detail. He couldn't get over how something so fake could look so real. He kept on saying that with that kind of technology, you could convince people of almost anything. These three men reminded us of the limitlessness of our hopes. There was a moment these past few days when we were all one people. We were all hoping. We were all a little bit taller, a little bit prouder. We were all feeling the same fears and the same exhilaration. These three men brought us together. We knew together that there are no goals we cannot reach if we just reach for them together. There is no adequate way in which we can express our gratitude to the men themselves because they are no longer among us. However, we can serve their memory, what they stood for. Thanks for tuning in. I um, hope you enjoy. Tell a story of my recent travels and then a, another story I think that is insightful for some of the uh, psychology that's happening around us on this pandemonium. Um, I also mentioned a company that's providing turnkey solutions for repatriation. I, I said to uh, South America, but I think they're actually focused on Central America. They're called ECI Development and they've been really, really responsive to inquiries as well two comments. One is that I think the pattern through the entire uh, recording is that there's an underlying issue, and this isn't exactly age-specific, but it's much more pronounced with the millennials, I'm noticing, uh, 35 and under or so, and that is like this meta-ADD. It's like the, there's a whole generation of people that have attention deficit disorder, and the story that I tell I, I mentioned that the guy was triggered and I couldn't understand why, but I, I suspect, 
I'm almost positive. He was actually triggered because I was trying to ignore him. So I was doing everything I could to ignore him. So I just wanted peace. And to him, that was an act of aggression, trying to ignore him. So I think that that is underlying a lot of what we're seeing right now. Some of these people that are suffering this massive ADD, if you're not giving them some sort of positive praise, if you're not feeding their narcissism, essentially, um, they're going to look for ways to get attention in other ways, like a, like a, like a child, like a two-year-old would do. And finally, I kept the entire recording is very positive. I focus on the positive. I didn't want to depress anybody. I'm also in a very positive space uh, at the moment. But I think it, it would be remiss for me not to say what I think the state of things is because I'm, I, don't, I don't want to gloss over it. I believe strongly that we are in the middle of World War III right now. If you ever wondered what you would behave like during wartime, you, you can just look at what you're doing now and that's what it is. Um, and World War III is a psychological propaganda war. It's a war for hearts and minds, and which is normal in wartime. You know, I've not ever been in a war zone, but um, the stories, you know, they play things on the announcers and they do flyers and then they try and capture the youth and re-education camps and all these things. I believe that's what's happening right now. And I believe the next waves, uh, it's just going to keep getting more and more obvious. I don't know the exact, the exact sequence of events, but the financial collapse is coming, so the entire people's, um, so the dollars in the markets will crash. I mean, that's it's just being supported artificially right now by printing money. And then, and people are already, small and medium businesses and any large businesses that aren't in on it, quote unquote, they're all being destroyed. So there's mass layoffs everywhere. So now you're, so the property values will, will uh, quickly evaporate. And then you've got a really spiritually destroyed uh, culture. And then you just get them hooked on these, like, what do you call it? Social credit scores, like in China. And you just have these slaves by digital digital everything. Um, that's the way I see it playing out. Uh, I don't know how quickly, but it, it just seems like they, they're setting the pace. Like, in terms of speed, it's just as fast as they can make it happen. That's why if there's a, if there's a lull, it's the chance to... Wake everyone you possibly can up to go off grid and get back to nature and uh, seek out networks that are off grid and back to nature. That's my my advice. Sorry to uh, be a bit of a downer. I mean, the words that are coming up around the oligarchs are is Bolshevi Bolshevism, and I never studied it directly, but I've done enough. I've had enough exposure. Like that's just the absolute worst hell on earth. The way the Bolsheviks. Um, rolled through Eastern Europe back in the day. So uh, if you want to scare yourself, do a quick uh, duck-duck-go search on Bolshevism and, um, and you'll get an idea what's, what's coming. But they don't have to. In most places, they don't have to because they've, they've already won the psychological war. I don't mean it's over. But uh, they don't need force. They just need messaging. People are just falling for the messages. So if you always wanted to know what it's like to live in an occupied territory, uh, I, I believe that's coming if, if we don't wake enough people up and get people taking right action. Sorry to be a downer, but the whole podcast is upbeat. <laughs> All right, we'll see you uh, in a week. Talk, connect in a week.
good day. Welcome back. It's been uh, some time since um, I've shared a blast. Uh, I've got a few personal updates. I would like to start with some serious positivity, talk about some of my observations. I've had a chance, you know, I've had a chance to see many nations now, must be around six or eight if you include my contacts with Canada. And then U.S. is getting a lot of coverage, so you can kind of get a gist of what's happening there. So I think I have a unique perspective on some of these cultures and how they're handling this whole thing. I will tell you about my recent little travel journey. It's much smaller than my uh, last one, <laughs> but uh, I think it's uh, illuminating in some ways, actually, um, in terms of the zeitgeist of the times. And then uh, just a few bullets on, on what I think some of the underlying uh, issues that are going on, some of the underlying psychology from my perspective. And then I will wrap up with a quote from uh, Dr. E. Michael Jones again, who to me is just absolutely hitting it out of the park. And he's the only one that I've that I've heard. It's a lot like Dr. Peterson. He was hitting it. To me, he was nailing it. <laughs> and then Dr. Jones is even more fastballs into the strike zone. So I'll get into, get into that. The movie at the beginning there was Capricorn 1, and I'll, so I'll have a couple of uh, observations about that story. It's definitely a resurrection slash uh, Plato's Cave story as well. But in terms of positivity, uh, one of the most positive experiences I've had recently was this summit. I did this online summit, a uh, virtual summit with uh, the Dollar Vigilante. I'll, hold, I'll uh, share the links. I think you can still see the tapes. And the value of that for me was a whole tribe of people that not only are sort of, you know, philosophically aligned, but they're all taking action to align their lives and help other people align their lives. To me, it was completely invaluable in terms of the connections in the network, and I hope they can keep it up. Uh, they sent out all the links to all of the experts that spoke, and then there was a whole bunch of like... So in terms of the actual talks, the substance of the talks were good, but it was more just getting the gist of where these guys were coming from and their philosophies on what's happening and then subscribing to their newsletters and things. And I got a lot of value out of the offhand remarks. I get so jazzed when I feel like I'm sort of interconnecting with what the new world will likely be, which is this honest peer-to-peer, -peer, no masters, no slaves, honorable business practices like bartering. You know, you're kind of going back... 50 years. You never had to have all these intermediaries um, with all these, like, well, a lot of them government agencies, you know, police, regulatory, all this stuff. If people are just dealing with each other, especially in their local communities, they're going to deal honestly, right? Generally. And uh, that's the message Peterson used to say on, on eBay. It's like they originally thought everyone was going to be trying to rip everybody off, but they found the exact opposite. It's like 99.99% approval ratings because everybody knows that dishonest practices uh, aren't sustainable so who wants to you know get a bad reputation so when I'm touching that kind of energy which is this honest peer-to-peer -peer bartering future I get really really jazzed and optimistic and crypto to me crypto is all over the shop I think there's some of the old uh, suspects are trying to figure out how they're going to control it and manipulate it and then there's other other ones that are pure to the original pure um, philosophy of crypto which is unregulated honest peer-to-peer -peer, transparent value exchange so that's going to settle out in the next 12 months or so but um, well I, I just don't think there's any way around it there's there's enough purists that it's going to survive 
So I'm a big fan. Um, and in these African countries that I've been traveling in, they have, uh, they've been having this system, this SMS system on, on their phones that they've been doing that are connected to the banks, which is also sort of regulated by the government. But it's very close for crypto to be interfacing with these mobile pay apps and just bypassing all of that bureaucracy. And you get total control over your financial savings and situation. And to me, that's so optimistic. So I get excited about that, and I'll save the links about this dollar vigilante. I guess I can give you a quick list from the presentations in the summit. There was a group that have done these turnkey solutions to help people re repatriate to South America. Uh, I think there was Nicaragua, Belize, Puerto Rico. I think Mexico might have been on that list, but Panama definitely. And they have this package where you invest in teak, in this teak economy, and um, and they'll help you you invest a fee basically they help you invest in this teak economy so it's like investing in the local production they help you with residency and they help you with property so it's a really great concept for people that are thinking about escaping but there were a whole bunch like that there was one guy who was an organic garden how to just completely survive on on wilderness composting and things there were a couple of guys on crypto there were a couple of guys on philosophy basically and then there were a couple of guys that are just like Dollar Vigilante. So they're competitors in a way, but, you know, they're co-opting because everybody needs the help. So there's one guy who was called the Reset Sniper. He was much more technical analysis about the impending financial collapse, but the exact same space as Dollar Vigilante. And there's a guy, Perpetual Assets. He was excellent. To me, he, uh, his message and perspective and position is completely resonating with mine. Seem to be about my age. I think he's in Singapore. He might be based in the USA, but his business is in Singapore. You can buy bullion, gold and silver, and have it in vaults in Singapore. And then you could borrow against it if you even want to. And you could take your loan and invest it in crypto if you want. I mean, that's the ultimate leverage if you wanted to be really ballsy. But everyone's looking for a place, to, a safe place to put their money. And um, precious metals has always been one of the safest, of course. So that was another great one. But anyway, I'll share, I'll share those links. It was just that it was all based on constructive action for the right reasons with a similar philosophy, which is like do no harm, um, but take no shit. You know, that kind of philosophy. So it was a really nice resonance. And I think they'll probably start to do them more often. I don't know what the price is to watch it on replay. It's definitely worth it for the tribe aspect for me. Ebook I'll share also. It's called The Market, the Market for Liberty. And it's all about what what true free market looks like, which is completely honest peer-to-peer. -peer. No need for government, no need for agencies, no need for regulatory, no need for police, no need for guns, no need for violence. The other positive aspect, which is, I guess, higher level, is when I'm having my most optimistic outlook, I think, you know, there's somebody near the top that's doing all this terrible, destructive activity but it's sort of like they're doing it for our own good you know and the own good is i think the outcome if you embrace it surrender and evolve with this is i think we're all going to get cured of our narcissism and self-absorption you know i think that and the, so that that's the positive that i i mean i think to survive this thing that's what's going to happen the people that are truly awakening are going to have to have their philosophies straight and they're going to have to know uh, about property rights and defending their family and property from uh, government.
government overreach and they're going to have to have their own sovereignty, their own personal sovereignty and understand their own agency over their own body. All those kinds of things. And not only that, but defend others, you know, defend the, the weaker people who are being violated against. So if, if, it's, if it actually was truly resolved, you would just see so much altruistic behavior. Like you, we've seen some of it already. You're seeing it all the time. These guys that, um, you know, they hear that government agencies are beating up on a single mom who's trying to open her barbershop or her hair salon, and they offer their services. They go with their weapons and they stand out front and they protect her from getting bullied by the local agencies, you know, that kind of thing. You sh we should be seeing that everywhere very soon if we want to overcome the tyranny that seems to be happening at, at the moment. So that's the good news. The bad news is I also ask myself, how far do we have to go? You know, if that's the ultimate goal to heal us of our narcissism, how, as a as a culture, how far do we have to go? And I, it feels like we have a long way to go, right? People are still attached to their creature comforts, their Netflix and porn, and they just they just want they want to they don't want to wake up, they don't want to see reality, they don't want to stand up for themselves, they don't want to stand up for their neighbors, you know, they don't want to stand up against tyranny, they just don't want the hassle. So what I'm seeing, I mean, Mark Passio made a really good point that. Like it's no fun saving yourself. I mean, you gotta you gotta save everybody you possibly can. But it, what I'm seeing is like two camps. There's a group of people that are fundamentally nihilistic on the inside, and they're quite happy to go along with everything. And they they don't mind if if it's their own total self destruction. I don't understand personally that frame of mind. There's a lot of people that seem to be going that way. I don't know what it would take to snap those people out of that track. I'm seeing like these two tiers. There's this one tier of, of people that are sort of in a gray area and they're awakening and they're starting to ask questions and they're starting to take action, which is so positive to see. And then there's this other tier that are just doubling down. They're doubling down on self-absorption and they'll just be good little slaves. They're happy to be good little slaves as long as they've got some creature comforts and they can tell themselves that they're being a good person while they go along with everything and watch innocent people be persecuted so so that's i guess the positive end the negative <laughs> the positive is i think the ultimate end is there's going to be a massive awakening there has to be i mean obviously it's happening everywhere but the downside is it's still a long way to go before people really before really you start to see this what do you call it silent majority kicking into gear and and realizing that they have to stand up for their, themselves, their family, their property, and their neighbors, and uh, govern themselves. That's the positivity. In terms of my travel experience, it was like an, one of the most dramatic contrasts I've ever experienced between what people are saying on, is on the other side of the border and what's actually on the other side of the border. <laughs> but I, I told you I was in one developing nation in Africa, and now I'm in another one, a neighboring one. I crossed by road. And the one I was in, um, they were falling for it. The government's completely corrupt. They're a very capitalistic culture, but they've been really, really hammered by trauma in media in the last decade since I used to, to visit more regularly. Like their culture has taken a complete shift. It's consistent with a lot uh, what I'm seeing like generationally. Their millennials are just like, the millennials you run into Vancouver or Seattle. It's almost like they have a chip on their shoulder. They're looking for a shortcut. 
They're narcissistic, egotistic. They don't want to learn anything. They don't want to ask anything. They don't want to apprentice. And if there's a fair deal, if it's like, yeah, okay, handshake, you do this service for my money, that's great. If, if it ends up being fair and both are happy, they feel like they're being <laughs> ripped off. I mean, this is a little bit of a, I'm reading into it a little bit, but that's how it seems like to me. They're not happy until they think that they took something extra from you. So if you're happy that you paid a fair price for a fair service, they feel like they didn't take enough from you. They want you to feel like you got a little ripped off, that you should have never trusted them in the first place. That's that's roughly <laughs> what the take is on these uh, the millennials where I just was. But I'm seeing that attitude a lot of places, and I, I there's a whole lot of psychology behind that. I have said before, I think it has a lot to do with um, strong fathers aren't in the home, especially for the guys. They're growing up without an ethos, and so they end up um, distrusting older guys, envious, resentful, spiteful, sort of, and I think they have the very similar attitude towards the higher power, you know, whatever word you want to use for that. So they're atheistic, they think they, they cling to science as their belief system, and money, and looks, and that leads them towards narcissism and nihilism, in my opinion, fundamentally. I don't know how these people are going to get healed by this. Uh, I don't know how they're going to snap out of it. But I was very disappointed, generally, culturally. But in terms of that travel experience, so I was talking for a few weeks that I wanted to cross the border. I heard this this bordering country um, has kicked the WHO out. They've banned any masks or gloves or any of this craziness. So I wanted to just get away from it, get away from the zeitgeist. And as the days were getting closer to my crossing, the intensity of the rhetoric from that that other neighboring country where I was was like unbelievable. They were telling me that like all these scary stories, you can't cross, there's tensions, you'll never be able to do it, your visa's out of date. Like it was incredibly in my face. I had to just think, just like cut myself off, think realistically, what's this crossing going to be like? What's the highway going to be like? And I'm like, I don't, I think it's all bullshit. I think they're just, but they believe it. When they're telling you, they believe it. I mean, and when you're crossing any of these borders, you typically get that. You get this, the closer you get to the border, the closer you get to, to people that believe that the culture on the other side of the border is all bad and you shouldn't go there and they're terrible people and blah, blah, blah. But anyway, my experience was, you know, there's some hassles and bureaucracies on that side and the exit side, but on the entry side, it was completely normal. It was like nothing's happening. There wasn't even a single message. They did, I think, pulse my temperature, but I, that was just like, I don't even know. There was nothing about the virus. There was some posters about Ebola. Nothing. I sat with some like border police while we were processing the visa and organizing transport and things. And they were all just sitting together eating lunch just like normal. So I knew, I knew within 100 feet of the border that I had crossed into a country that just didn't buy it completely. Uh, that's the good news. The bad news is they could. You know, if they weren't being protected from this media by their leaders, if their leaders weren't taking a stand, this culture could buy it. They've just, they, they haven't thought it through at all. It's almost like some of them want to join the rest of the world, <laughs> but they don't believe it. But anyway, so I crossed, I'm in a complete sanctuary. I don't really know what's happening. I'm in a very small little rural little post here. So I don't really know what's happening in the country. 
but I can say that in my little experience, no one's buying it, no one's freaking out, there's no fear, it's just relaxed so I can get back on my feet. And I've had some, uh, in terms of get, getting my head clear, because it was just getting too much. I guess probably most of you are experiencing the same thing. Just everywhere you go, everything you try and do. Can't, can't do that, man. Can't, man. <laughs> the new superhero is Can't, man. And it was like, if you try and fight it, like, it's just, it just causes you more stress. So it starts to be like, how do I get out of this? Anyway, so I'm lucky. It was a neighboring country. I had no idea how close that border was until I asked. And that was like an hour drive, and I couldn't believe it, how easy it was when it came, when the time actually came. I was waiting for my E. Michael Jones book, which I've now gotten into, and I'm completely not disappointed in any way. He's, like I said, throwing fastballs through the, through the strike zone of the fundamental psychology of what's happening. I'll say a few bullet points. I'll share the anecdote, and then a couple bullet points on the Capricorn 1 movie from the beginning, and then we'll end with the Michael Jones quote. On my last podcast... I predicted that I thought it was going to go the way of Kamar Rouge, that they were going to stir up the mobs against the public intellectuals. That hasn't exactly happened, but I, I'm not sure what's going to happen next. I have no idea. The second wave discussion, they don't, have to, they don't have to do much. They just say something on TV and people do it. So the, the sort of the fear aspect and the, and the obedience is happening. I don't, ha I don't think they have to create that much. So it's more like, the ones that are seeing through it have to be the ones doing the work to wake people up during the calm times. But I did see a post this week that Steven Pinker at Harvard, you know, he's like one of these guys that's got a foot in both camps. He's very connected and popular with sort of the younger crowd and, and the in crowd and the mainstream. But he also thinks for himself and speaks out against, against some of this sort of mob mentality. I saw a very long interview between him and Peterson maybe a year ago, um, and they're, they were very, very closely aligned. So anyway, there's some people declaring that the mobs are going to go after Steven Pinker. So I think that's the first example of the Kamar Rouge Pol Pot going after the public intellectuals that I had said. I can't say my prediction has come true, but that's just one little example where it, where it is. I guess fundamentally, fundamentally, this whole thing, to me, it's it's just extremely transparent that it, it brings this dichotomy of our choice of how we want to live. And someone, it might have been Peterson, someone once said that it's helpful to think of humanity psychologically as being half uh, reptile and half unicorn in terms of our instincts. So we've got this like this reptilian survival instinct um, kill or be killed, you know, kind of thing, cold-blooded, and we've and then we've got this other nature that's just like do no harm. Uh, to me, that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing this some of these bad behaviors. I'm seeing as uh, like this reptilian behavior is just thriving. You know that 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 I think it's an Eskimo story or an, or a Native Indian story. They say that it's the wolf that you feed. Or <laughs> so if you're feeding your, like I think that's what we're up against. The people that are the ultimate perpetrators of this darkness and this tyranny, these people have been feeding their inner reptilian for their whole lives. And that's how they think. And that's how they think everyone else thinks. But if you're uh, more unicorn-minded, you're more do-no-harm-minded, you can't for the life of you, you can't for the life of you imagine somebody who's got this reptilian mindset. To me, that's, that's the fundamental barrier people have. And, and, and the question that you get 
if you get somebody that can ask a question, most of them aren't asking a question, but if you get some, the first question is, why would they do that? Why would, why would anyone do that? Why would they, anyone make up a hoax like that? And how, why would they get media and governments to cooperate? Why? You know, from a, from a unicorn mindset, it makes no sense. They can't imagine. <laughs> and so maybe I'll just tell this, this, this traffic story I had from December uh, to demonstrate that point. And then, uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap up with some of the other observations from the films. So I was basically December. I was commuting to Bahrain. There's a causeway. So the commute's about 75 minutes. And on the causeway, there's customs and two immigration gates and then customs and then insurance and then you're in. You know, just like crossing from Canada to U.S. or Canada, more like crossing from U.S. to Mexico uh, in terms of the gates and things. And, it's a, and a lot of people do that commute daily. So there's one lane where, for whatever reason, the way they had set it up, it's being fed by four gates down the road. So when you're coming to line up, that particular lane on the far right-hand side moves like five times faster than all the other lanes. So anyone that does that daily commute notices that and always goes in that lane because it's faster. And because of that, the line is quite a bit longer than all the other ones. So I'm in that lane. And then for some reason during a, a period, I don't know why this happened, but there was like a group of people and they knew exactly what they were doing, but they were taking the short lane to get started and then they were just barging themselves into that other lane. I guess sort of pretending that they didn't know that what was happening, but these were like frequent frequent travelers. So I'm part way up on that right side, on that far right side, minding my own business, and I'm actually in a really super good space. I think I'm about to go on Christmas vacation, and I'm just happened to be that day in a really zen space, like absolutely do no harm. My inner unicorn was was coming out. <laughs> I had no animosity towards anybody. I just wanted to get back to Bahrain so I could do a few things. Anyway, I see this guy like really aggressively, and that happens sometimes. On my causeway, just some of the, you know, some of the different cultures, they have different protocols, and that's fine. And my attitude usually is let, you know, the local culture, so if Saudis and Bahrainis, let them work it out. You know, let that, you know, if if someone is crossing the cultural norms, let the other, let that culture, you know, call them out. I'll I'll just stay out of it. <laughs> I I decided in this case that I've been going through this for a few days, so I'm like these guys that are doing the short lane and then trying to barge over, <laughs> like that's just totally not okay. So I'm just going to stick to the bumper in front of me and I'm not going to look. I don't even want to know who it is. So that's what I decided to do. You know, I just don't want to provoke anybody, mind my own business, stick to the bumper in front of me, and these guys should leave me alone because I'm in my lane. It's a straight lane. There's no merge happening. So this guy, he, he's like barging straight into the front of my wheel well, trying to. And I just don't look up. And I assume it's a Saudi because they, they can be quite aggressive on the, on the, in the lineup compared to our typical the way we typically operate in those kinds of merge situations. But this wasn't a merge. So I see this nose coming in. I'm just like, I'm not going to look. And I'm just going to squeeze by this person and they can just deal with whoever's behind me because I know that this, this person does not deserve a spot in front of my car. <laughs> he doesn't deserve to be in this line. And that's fine. And I got past him. So my nose got past his nose. Our mirror is almost bumped, so I pulled my mirror in. And then once we were past, once I was clear, I just looked up and, and I, I wasn't in an attitude. I didn't even look in his face. I just gave him a thumbs up like we're all clear. You know, no no scratch, no damage, we didn't hit. You know, like, you'll get the next one. You know, I wasn't giving him any attitude. No provocation. 
And up until this point, I still thought it was a Saudi. I don't know. It wasn't. It sounds like I'm like I provoked him, but I didn't. There was no provocation whatsoever. The guy then accelerated into the side of my vehicle, so my nose was past his nose, and and we were past. We were clear. I pulled my mirror in, and I was past. So my mirror was past his mirror. And he accelerated into the side of my vehicle. And like, so it was a side-by-side sort of crunch and scratch. And I went, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> so I look over and I make that face or I might have mouthed that, you know? Anyway, I keep going because he's now behind me. So I just keep going because he can't get in front of me anymore. He's now behind me. So all he can do is run into the side of my car. And so I keep pulling ahead and he's he's now pulled right into the side of my vehicle. So... So as my vehicle continues to pull ahead, you know, this scratching, banging, collision sound, his mirror hits the side of my car, it, it like breaks, like so it's hanging on by the cable. <laughs> and um, so I'm past him now. And I'm just like, what the fuck was that? You know? But I also realize, I look down with a mirror on my car, no damage. All the damage was on his. So he accelerated into the side of my car and he sort of bounced off of it. It was just luck, just pure dumb luck. And I was like, oh, God, that's hilarious. So now all the damage is his. He was being the ass. He got the damage. I'm two car car links in front of him now. You know, that's it. It's done. I'll never see that guy again as long as I live. <laughs> and I didn't even get upset. Like, I, I was just like, what the fuck? That's, what, that's all I said. So I wasn't even engaged in, that, in any conflict whatsoever. So fine. So I'm, I'm laughing to myself a little bit. Not, not out loud, not a face. He couldn't have seen me. I was long gone. I was just saying, God, that's just poetic justice. You know, that's just karma. I'm in this good space. This guy collides into me. He gets all the damage. And and now I'm ahead of him in line and I never have to see him again. <laughs> anyway, so the guy, so I think that's it. It's done. We're done, you know? Well, doesn't he, like, decide to make a race out of this? This guy's, like, maybe 10 years younger than me. He decides now to make a race out of this. And he's going to get across the border first or whatever. I, I'm not paying any attention. I, I've forgotten about him now. I literally have forgotten about him now. I'm at the gate. I'm at the last gate as you're exiting Saudi Arabia. And the guy gets out of his car. He runs across, no joke, 10 lanes. Tells the immigration guy that's taking my passport to, you know, stamping me out of the country. Tells him to seize my passport and hold me and retain me because I ran into his car. Okay? I can't believe this. I'm like, I'm actually falling over shocked at what's happening at this point. He's, he's a British guy. By now, I can tell he's he's a white British guy, healthy, athletic, 35, 40 year old guy, engineer or something, you know, in an engineering type truck. And I'm like, wow, this is weird. And the immigration guy assumes, well, you must be guilty. I mean, why would anybody make a scene like this unless you're guilty? So, <laughs> so he does what the guy says. So then, they get the passport to the like the office. So now they've seized my passport. I have to pull over, and they haven't stamped me. So I'm still in the country. I have to pull over, and I have to go into the immigration counter inside. This guy, he's running ahead all the time. Okay, so he's running ahead, and he's telling, he's telling uh, every officer that will listen that I'm a terrible person. I collided into his car. You got to keep this guy here. He's like, uh, you got to seize his passport. You can't let him cross. You can't let him move. He's, uh, he's, you know, like that. And I'm just dumbfounded. Like, I'm absolutely gobsmacked by this whole experience. But the reason I'm telling this story is every single person in the position of authority 
took his word for granted. They just assumed, why would anyone behave this way if he wasn't wronged? That's what they all were assuming. So every single one of them assumed that I was guilty of something. They all assumed that. So then they has to call this insurance adjusting organization. It's like an agency for the government that's going to come and, 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 um, and decide who is at fault. So this, so hours later, okay, this is like a Tuesday night waiting on the Saudi border. It's like the worst waste of time. But I'm still not even upset. I'm just like shocked at what's happening. And this isn't the, I don't even think this guy's a bad guy. This is why I'm telling the story. I'll explain a little bit more in a second. So then the adjuster comes. Again, the guy runs out to greet him and tell him what a bad guy I was and all this terrible thing I did to his car and blah, 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 blah. And so again, this guy, even though he's a really nice, friendly, easygoing guy, Saudi guy, he assumes that I must have wronged this guy. He assumes, like, why? Well, why would this guy make a big scene if, he's not, if, the, if, if, he, if he wasn't wronged? Then there's like some discussion about what happened. We're trying to both explain our case. And this guy's like trumping up the charges, okay? <laughs> and I said, just look, we don't even have to talk about it. You've got cameras everywhere. Just review the tapes. Just review the tapes. I don't want to get into this. Just review the tapes and then you decide and we'll be on our way, okay? So, so immediately, everyone around us that heard me and was watching how I was reacting would, were thinking like a guilty person wouldn't behave this way. You know, a guilty person wouldn't be saying, just go review the tapes. So the guy goes, 10 minutes later, comes back. Well, now he's treating me like, now he's treating this as, uh, how do we get out of this situation? You know, how do I just resolve this conflict so we can get out of this situation? Because this guy, there's nobody guilty of anything per se. That's his demeanor now, okay? <laughs> and so he's just looking at a way to keep the peace and get us out of there. So he, he ends up looking at the, the two vehicles and he had looked at the tapes and he's like 50-50, 50-50, like he just wants to get out of it because he could see that that I was innocent. He could see on the, on the videos that I was innocent. And of course, if it's 50-50, you don't need to, to wait for two and a half hours in the middle of the night in an immigration counter in Saudi Arabia in the middle of nowhere, right? I mean, if it's 50-50, we just take care of our business ourselves. So the last thing the guy says is, um, uh, the other guy, the British guy, says, yeah, we needed it. We ne I said, so why don't you just, like, can we just, just drop this whole case, forget the whole thing, just move on with our lives, and just drop it? No, man, we need it. We need it for insurance. So my point is this, and I think this is the mechanism that's happening. This is what we're seeing. We all have this reptile, and we all have this unicorn. That guy, that guy had some overblown sense of himself relative to me. I mean, I don't think it was personal exactly, but he believed he was entitled to do what he was doing, even though he was completely in the wrong. But he had convinced himself that he was entitled to behave this way, and then he just completely tried to reshape reality to support that belief. The bigger point is this presumed guilty thing. So this this guy's probably in, in normal work office situation. He's probably a pretty normal guy, but he was just so convinced that he was untouchable, essentially, or above the law. Maybe you can say that. Above, like, right and wrong. Like, like if he decides he's going to belong there, then he's going to belong there. And, and it's everyone's job to just bend down to him. So this is what I think is going on with this presumed guilty thing. The first thing is a very kind of naive child. Okay, so now I'm talking about the immigration people that all presume that what he was, that the, the accusation he was making must be true. Because why would he make it, okay? 
There's so many levels that's happening with that particular issue. The first one is just a childlike innocence. Why would somebody lie about something like that? Why would they react this way if there was no wrongdoing? Okay, that's just like this extremely childlike innocence. The next one is, I want no drama. These guys are like, Abs I want no drama. I want the absolute minimum. So the absolute minimum is just agree with this guy and get him out of here. <laughs> you know, if any one of them had some honor, they would just ask a simple question. Like they would just turn to me and say, you know, is any of this true? You know, but they, they, they want. So it's just easier with a false accusation to just completely, if it's strong enough, just completely go along with it. But there's, there's one other aspect that I think is also going on with this whole zeitgeist. And that is this concept of the German concept of Schadenfreude. You know, this, that, that taking joy in other people's downfall. I don't know. The example, the example, I mean, you know, you can be, you can be cheering for the Leafs and the Habs are your ultimate enemy in Montreal hockey. I'm talking about in the playoffs. And uh, the Habs get beat out in the first round, and you're happy that somebody else has suffered a failure like that, okay? So that's sort of, to me, that's sort of playful and normal and natural. <laughs> it's not like you're going to, it's just like your rival just, just dropped the ball, and so you, you just a tiny little bit of glee. That's just sports playfulness. Yeah, so uh, what I imagine in this, if you imagine, so imagine you're in this tense situation. Maybe it's an interview or something. And, and you look around, maybe there's like six candidates all sitting in a waiting room. And one of them is obnoxious or, or even half drunk or half hungover or, un, you know, it's just, it's just debauched in some way. Well, everyone else is going to be relieved, okay? That person's now the, the fool. So now I don't have to, but it's like it lets off the tension when something bad happens to someone else in that situation. So I think, I think that there is a massive it's it's this is all connecting okay <laughs> these millennials and people that think like that it's not all millennials there's like people middle age all ages they want to be let off the hook okay they don't want to be responsible for their own freedom they don't they're even a little bit uncomfortable with freedom so when they see someone else getting caged it's it's like this little schadenfreude this little lift and i i really like i've never had my head in that headspace I've never taken any glee in another person being persecuted or imprisoned or presumed guilty wrongfully. I mean, why? why? It doesn't make any sense. But I'm seeing that everywhere, everywhere. So these guys that are taking photos of you not wearing your mask or snitches, the neighbors doing the snitches, it's like they're already down. Maybe they gave up on life. Maybe they gave up on freedom. Maybe they gave up on responsibility a long time ago. And they just want everyone else in the shit with them. And, and now you're seeing it again with the... With these protests uh, against tradition, against statues, against history, against all things that are successful in the West. It's like they resent, they don't want to play that game. <laughs> they resent the game. They resent that there's there's a opportunity out there. All they have to do is go get it. They'd rather tear it all down. They'd rather tear it all down and have everyone just buried and starving in the dust together. So I am shocked. I'm constantly shocked at how much how often I'm running into people that are disturbed by someone's got a free mind, got a free attitude, got a, you know, going for a free walk in nature or what have you. I can't tell you how often 
people sort of smell it on me that I'm thinking freely and I'm talking freely and they want to like double check who's who owns your chains you know like do you own a mask they'll ask for no reason out of nowhere do you own a mask like they want to make sure that um that you're also a slave <laughs> or or uh like are you still working for xyz you know like they want to make sure someone owns your your chains because pure freedom makes them uncomfortable they'd rather they've given up on their freedom at some point and they they feel better if if everyone else's freedom is taken away and i think that's what the dynamic was on that bahrain causeway it it was it was an absolute shock to me and i don't think that guy is probably a bad guy it's just that somehow i provoked his inner reptile and he had some sort of delusion of his superiority in that situation which i still don't fully plus he's driving a company vehicle he wants to get the insurance he needs a, he needs to have he needs a perpetrator he needs to blame somebody you know on and on and on but i just couldn't believe how quick everyone was to want to believe that i was guilty uh without asking a single question that was just shocking because i didn't look any more guilty than any <laughs> i just looked like a like a passerby you know so that's my little story of what i think is happening in terms of in terms of capricorn 1 that was a favorite film of mine when I was a kid. I have no idea why. It was 1977. I was only 10 in 1977. I saw it in the theater with my cousin. So maybe I saw it when I was 11 and he was 13. It's really strange to me that I was completely resonating with a conspiracy movie at the age of 11. <laughs> the, the resurrection aspect of it, well, you could kind of hear from the quotes. But basically, you've got these guys that are heroes of the mainstream, right? They've been propped up to be these these heroes, these Weedabix box people and they're going to go to Mars <laughs> and then they realize the whole thing's a sham and they're pawns and now and this is the this is the schism that, that I was talking about that happening with medical people it happens with police it happens with military they get completely if you get trapped with your image if you get attached to your image you get completely torn down the middle because soon reality catches up to this this isn't actually uh, your behavior isn't matching the image. So now you're, it turns out you're just a complete stooge. You're a pawn in someone else's game. Now, you have a choice. Do you want to go along with it, which is a reptile, right? Or do you want to stick to your principles and, and maybe even disappoint, disappoint your own wife and kids by saying, by standing up and saying this thing is a whole sham and my whole image has been built on a sham. So he goes through uh, the the number the star James Brolin, Joss Brolin's dad. He uh, he goes through this whole journey of realizing that he's a pawn in someone else's game, and they've got a whole lot of time. They've got tons of time to think about it and argue about it with the other astronauts. And then he decides that freedom and honesty, you know, and being with the family is more important than the sham that he was a part of. And they have a cave scene. And they have a Scorpio scene, and they have a snake scene. There seems to be always that symbolism comes into it. And uh, and the other aspect of it is the 70s. That the there's something so nostalgic about the old technology, like the old rotary dial phone and mess and you know the tape messaging machine, and and uh, the guys are playing pool at a bar, and the guy gets a phone call at the bar, you know, which is the way it used to be. Uh, something really really nostalgic about that. But um, but basically, there they are. They're the controllers of the, uh, the cultural controllers or cultural engineers are telling you 
exactly how they do things, exactly how they manipulate the media, and exactly how they they take innocent people and they prop them up into an image that they can't escape from, and then they're torn right down the middle. They don't know. And then when they try and be honest, if they ever do try, they just get completely ruined in the in the press. So they they know they're just in a trap. Uh, I think that's what's happening with a lot of the people that get quote-unquote suicided. I hope you enjoy this clip from E. Michael Jones. He, it was a 60-minute talk he did about 10 years ago on C-SPAN, and I, I, I've had a very hard time picking out. A, it's so good, the whole 60 minutes, but I'll just, uh, I'll just pick out the best 10 minutes I think that's most relevant and share it here. And it's good to be back in touch, and, um, and I'll share the links on the page. All right, thanks. McDougall, and as painful as it is, Logos is definitely rising. You know, this is not typical Indiana. So anyway, he says to me, no, no, I want to see this thing right away. And I said, well, Jack, why should I show you this article? I said, he said, in the interest of fairness and objectivity. And I said, Jack, when was this place ever fair or objective with me? And he said, he said, well, we think you're going to distort things in the article. And I said, Jack, all I'm going to do is tell the truth. At that point, he exploded. Remember, the doors open. All the secretaries are out there. He says to me, truth, with the cigar in one hand and the lighter flicking in the other. Truth, bullshit. Truth, bullshit. He's screaming this at the top of his lungs. I mean, even Punch's Pilot didn't go that far. <laughs> At least Punch's Pilot asked a question, you know? And now I remember thinking at that time, why is this guy going on this way? What did I do to deserve this? You know, all I said was I was going to tell the truth. Well, I learned then that the truth is a very sensitive topic. Uh, for a lot of different reasons. Now, I didn't understand quite why it should be such a sensitive topic in this guy's life, but I found out later on. I mean, the question, I left the office thinking, why does he hate the truth? Why does he think that the truth is bullshit? Why is he making this, this type of correlation? And I kept that in my mind for a number of, it, it, it didn't, it's still in my mind, but I kept it in my mind for a number of years, and then suddenly, I heard that Jack was leaving. He had resigned suddenly. Now, the reason you read in the paper was not really the reason that everyone else knew. The reason he resigned suddenly was because he was having an affair with one of the deans, and the people in the college found out about it, and the news was just about to get out, so he left before it would happen. Now, I think that this was a revelation to me. I think that what I learned here is that people who are sensitive to about the truth are sensitive for very particular reasons. And I think that's a reason, the reason a lot of people feel the same way about the truth. So I sort of left, I sort of shook the dust, dust off my feet and I walked away. And I, I had two projects in mind. I thought, something happened to Catholic education because I shouldn't have been fired for opposing abortion, okay? So I decided to find out what happened to Catholic education. 
And I also tried to find out, let's, let's figure out the difference. There seems to be a connection between the way people live and the way people think. Now, the first uh, question I think I, I answered in a book, which you can get out there, called John Cardinal Crowell and the Cultural Revolution, which is basically about how the Catholic Church got subverted during the Cultural Revolution of the 60s. That's a long story, and I'm not going to go into it now. The other question is the relationship between uh, truth and action. I started, to, I started a magazine, started uh, Fidelity, which dealt mostly with the Catholic stuff. But during this period, I started reading biographies of people that I had known, uh, been taught as an undergraduate. The big difference between when I was an undergraduate and when Adam, my son, was an undergraduate is that people believed modernity in the 60s. They lived it and they believed it and they believed all those stuff as the God's honest truth. And by the time Adam got to Harvard, they had to enforce that. And that's the essence of what political correctness is. So I started reading biographies. I read a biography. In other words, the lives of these people seem to me to provide an explication of their texts in a way that the text did not themselves. So suddenly uh, I had a revelation here, okay? that basically what we're talking about here is projection. This was Margaret Mead's guilty conscience, and she made a career out of it because a lot of other people had the same guilty conscience. All the liberated ladies at Barnard in the 1920s loved Margaret Mead's book because it said, in the state of nature, there's no guilt, and you can commit adultery, and there's no problem attached to it. I found that just about every modern thinker of the type I had studied in, uh, as an undergraduate had this sort of skeleton in his closet. And I tried as a result of that to come up with some type of formulation of this idea. What were we talking about here? And it seems to me that in this, in keeping with this conference, you have two options in life, at least intellectual options. You can either conform your desires to the truth or you can conform the truth to your desires. And it seems to me that just about every modern thinker that I came up with now that the biographies were coming out had chosen the latter course. They had decided to suppress the truth because it didn't conform to their desires. So Sigmund Freud would say all men have a desire to sleep with their mothers and their sisters. All men, Sigmund? I found that hard to, hard to swallow when I first heard it. And then suddenly the story of Freud's relationship with his sister came out. And suddenly this became somewhat more understandable. I'm saying the thesis of the book is that modernity is modernized. Is, I'm sorry. Modernity is rationalized sexual misbehavior. And we now live at the tail end of modernity. And so the university system is nothing more than an elaborate rationalization of sexual misbehavior. Now, why would you want to do this? Aldous Huxley wrote a book called Means and Ends in which he gives some indication. He said, my generation, meaning the English generation in the 30s, the people who all became communists and from which the blunts and the, the spies uh, came from, he said, my generation believed in meaninglessness, but we believed in meaninglessness for a very special reason, because we were all interested in sexual liberation. In other words, if it was meaningless, then 
there was no guilt attached to it. In other words, we were kill we are ready to kill meaning to let our guilty consciences off the hook. And I'm saying that he the only thing that's different between Huxley and all the people who came after him is that Huxley was honest enough to admit it. Because I think that this gets to the heart of what we're talking about when we're talking about truth on campus. The heart of what we're talking about here is that there is a connection between what you do and what you think. As a matter of fact, I think that the essence of the Western tradition is that understanding. That, that if you want to talk about it in its most metaphysical terms, we can... We strive to know what is true, and we strive to achieve what is good, but that those two things are ultimately united at the end, that the true and the good, in a sense, are one and the same thing, and that if you violate one, you violate the other. If you turn your back on one, if you decide that I do not want the good, then you can't want the true either. But what we're talking about here is the deliberate extinction the deliberate extinction of the truth, the deliberate darkening of the mind. Now, the classic authors knew that lust had something to do with this. They would say that lust darkens the mind. In other words, passion. The mind is like a window. And if you don't perceive, if it's not clean, you can't see through it. In other words, you can't get to reality through the mind. The way we think depends on the kind of person we are. We can only apprehend the truth to the extent that we live the truth. And living the truth means conforming our actions to the truth. And conforming our actions to the truth means living according to the moral law, which is the truth about human nature. People who are teaching our children who have made the decision that their desire is the most important thing in the world. Now, how do you deal with people like that? The goal of the control of the educational system, the ultimate goal, is the control of your sexual life. That, it seems to me, is the genius of this system. If you can control... If we can determine from an early age how you will behave sexually, we will determine how you behave. We don't have to put a gun to your head. We will simply know that you will behave in certain predictable fashions. And this, why, this is why I think the educational system is wedded to the propagation of vice, because vice means control. I'm doing a, a book now on Frankenstein, and I think that's the essence of Frankenstein. The, that monster is the sexual license that you let onto the world. That monster is your unrepented sins, and it will never die. We live in a culture that creates monsters and then, and then looks on in shock when the monsters do what monsters do. In this sense, we live in a culture that goes back to a warning all the way at the beginning of our culture. I'm thinking of a play by Euripides called The Bacchae. If you're familiar with that play, it's about the women have left their looms, so it's kind of a play about feminism. The women have all left their looms. They're off on the mountainside dancing naked, watching the Asiatic, or worshiping the Asiatic god Dionysus. And Pentheus, who is an intelligent man, he's the king of Thebes. He realizes 
that there is, this is not a private issue when women take off their clothes and dance on the mountain. There is social order involved in this thing, and he as the king is responsible for social order, and so he has to do something. He has to apprehend Dionysus, which is, of course, what he does. It's easy to capture Dionysus. He brings him into his throne room, and Dionysus says, your armies have no power over me, and the king kind of smirks. And then Dionysus shows the king why his armies have no power. He says to him, would you like to um, see the women dancing naked on the mountainside? In other words, he appeals to the king's prurient interest. And the king, as a matter of fact, would like to see the women dancing naked on the mountainside. And so Dionysus says, well, I'll take you there, but you've got to do one thing. You have to put on a dress. So the king puts on a dress, and he marches through the town and sort of ruins his authority by walking around like this. But uh, Dionysus, or Pentheus climbs the tree, the women see him, and then they rush over, and they bring him down, and they tear him limb from limb. In the final scene of the play, Pentheus's grandfather is standing there, and he says to this woman, what do you see? Now, the woman is sitting there with Pentheus's head in her lap. The woman happens to be Pentheus's mother. But she's still under this kind of feminist Dionysian intoxication. She, she says, it's a trophy. It's a lion's head. It's something great. And uh, her father says, look again. And then the intoxication starts to wear off. And she looks down and she realizes it's the, the head of her son. And she says, great line, she says, he says, what do you see? And she says, I see horror. I see suffering. I see grief. That's what we see right now. That's what academia is all about right now. But on the other side of the coin, there is the sense that maybe the intoxication is wearing off.
yourself.